0: Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, if you could open them up to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2 is, uh, is our text. We're in the sixth part of a series called Rise Up and Build. How do we as a church rise up and build redemptive community, but walls around each other's lives, walls around the people of God in this community? That's the aim of... Of this series, so while you're opening up to Nehemiah, let me do two housekeeping rules. Number one, we're trying to um, teach Pastor Matthew. You don't say the word "heck" from the front, okay? So just be patient with that. That's an improvement on what he normally says. But secondly, that's not true. That was just that was a joke. But secondly, um, Linda, when he was saying, "Come see." One of us pastors, if you want to get involved, she felt like a loser because he didn't mention her name. So in order to instill worth in Linda, who has just newly come on staff, all right, go talk to her too if you need to get involved, okay? Now, we have massive, massive areas of children's ministry. Children are hugely important to us and uh, they need to become more important. So please see Linda by all means if you want to get involved with children. We've got lots of things we need people to be working with including getting ready to multi-site which means all of this all of the ministries that are happening here that we need people to be able to be involved doing you also need a whole new group being involved down at the second campus when we launched that so again to echo what Matthew was saying if you're not involved you love this church I don't even care if you don't love this church some of your hands that didn't go up we don't love you either okay it's (laughs) Let's just get it off our chest. Get involved. We need your your involvement. All right, Nehemiah chapter 2. But before we get involved in Nehemiah chapter 2 to look and see... Diane, I'm sorry. I'm trying to get better. Um, She prays for me regularly. Lord, put a a grid over his mouth. It's not working. You're not praying hard enough. As we get ready to look in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, I want to draw your attention. You can either go to the screen behind me. I put the scriptures up there. Or if you want to hold your finger in in Nehemiah 2... And uh, flip open to Song of Solomon, just go to the right in your Bible, a few books, or Song of Songs. And what I'm going to do this morning is, um, let me take an unofficial poll. I'm sorry for Blackberry phone lovers, but just between Android and Apple, how many of you are iOS fans, you're Apple fans, you love all things Apple, raise your hands, all right? All right, good. Lots of people to pray for. Now, those who are, those of you who are like me, Android lovers, and Google is the way to go because they're not greedy like... Anyways, raise your hand if you're a Google Android lover. All right, not enough of us. What I'm going to do this morning is kind of introduce what we're doing and the purpose of this sermon. See, I have, I have a, an Android tablet. Little seven inch tablet, Acer Iconi, in case you care. And I have a Droid Razer phone. And both of them, I've been waiting eagerly to be updated to the new 4.0 ICS, is 4.03 now, um, ice cream sandwich operating system. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to sort of update your firmware when it comes to Nehemiah. We're going to do Nehemiah 2.0, basically, is what we're doing today, okay? I couldn't think of a better way to say that. I want to go back and I want to take the introduction of this sermon and remind you again what we might not yet be seeing in Nehemiah, but yet is critical as we continue our way through this book. So here's why I'm doing this. I want to start out in Song of Songs. And here, let let me set it up for you. Song of Solomon, if you've never... It goes by either Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, if you've never read it. It's a fantastic book. It's written on two levels. On one level, which is most apparent and most obvious, it's the love between King Solomon and a woman by whose name is the Shulamite. We don't know her given birth name. She's called the Shulamite throughout the book. And they meet in the early part of the book, they love one another, they get engaged or betrothed, they wed in chapter 3, they have their honeymoon, they have their first fight in marriage in chapter 5, it's all full of drama and good stuff. Um, and then they get to chapter 8 and it's like an anniversary trip back to the country, back to where they met each other. They're strolling through the country, remembering how they met, remembering their love for one another. It's what we all ought to do on our anniversaries with our spouses and so you get to chapter eight and you find towards the end of the book, the Shulamite woman looking back to what her family and friends said to her and about her when she was a little girl. Now that's one level. The deeper, grander, more glorious level of the Song of Songs, it's about the marriage, the love, the betrothal, the marriage between Jesus Christ and his church. Jesus, the groom, And the bride being Israel and being the church grafted into Israel. Okay, so you've got two layers, two levels. It's a beautiful book and it's awesome. And you get to chapter 8 and now we get Nehemiah 2.0 starting to update. Here we go. We have a little sister, verse 8, should be on the screen behind me. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? So here's the family. Now listen, you got to get this. Here's the family saying, we've got a little girl. She's prepubescent. Okay, that's why it says, and I took it out, but it's why she has no breasts. She's not yet grown into a woman. She's a little girl. And the question is, the family is asking a question, what can we do for her to prepare her For the day that she will be married. What can we do to preserve her purity? To preserve her focus? To come around her and to hold her modesty. For the day that she's going to be married. And look what they say. If she is a wall. We will build on her a battlement of silver. If she shows and has and demonstrates no openings into her heart. No temptation can get through the wall. No impurity, no immodesty. If she's showing herself pure, a wall, then we will build on her battlements of silver. Parents, you got to be listening. This is what we do to our children. We'll honor her. We will strengthen her. We will bring glory to her. We will thank her for her modesty, for her purity, for being a wall. That's what they're saying. That's one level. The deeper, grander, more glorious level is this. How about those of us who come to know Christ, young in our faith? What will we... Now listen, Cornerstone. What will we do for that person to preserve their faith, to preserve their holiness, to sanctify them in their walk to the day in which they will be meeting Christ for eternity in glory? You see the two levels? One level is between a a man and a woman. The other level is between Jesus Christ and his church. What are we going to do for this church to beautify this church, to strengthen this church, to wash this church in sanctification, to get this church ready for the great marriage supper of the Lamb that will happen in all of eternity? But, they say, if she is a door. We will enclose her with boards of cedar. We will bring bring around her a barricade made of wood that does not rot. That's why they built the inner workings of the temple, the house of God, with cedar wood. It lasts and lasts and lasts, it's impervious to the creatures that want to destroy the wood. So if she's got openings, if she's not a wall, if there's gateways for the enemies, if there's temptation, if there's immodesty, if there's impurity, then we're going to act, family of friends, they say. We're going to come around her and we're going to barricade her. Our strength will be lent to her. Our effort will be going to her. We will hold her accountable. This happened, by the way, yesterday evening after church because there was a group of teens and young Adults that were gathered at a pool and they started talking about things that really were not appropriate for a mixed group, joking and impure jesting. And the lady who owns the home, overhearing them, walks out there and pulls aside a few of the girls, brings them into her home and says, ladies, be pure because you're a door." and you need to be a wall. Ladies, this is what you do with younger girls. Men, this is what you do with younger guys. If the older men and women aren't doing this in the church, then don't be surprised when the younger men and women are doing things that ought not to be done. How do we build barricades of cedar around one another? That's the aim of this. And look what the Shulamite woman will say to her husband I was a wall. I tell you what, ladies, and let me first tell you this there is grace and there is mercy for you. If you have not kept your purity for your husband, there is mercy. But how better is it to walk down that aisle towards your husband on the day that you were spoken for with white on and literally being able to wear it with thankfulness that it represents the purity that you have been a wall and not a door. And how incredible will it be, Christian brother and sister, when we meet Jesus face to face and he says, you were a wall. Thank you. Because you honor me. Ladies, you know what you'll give to your husband? You'll give the same thing that we give to Jesus Christ. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Men, it's the same thing for you. How awesome it is to watch your bride walk down that aisle knowing that you have kept faithful. And how incredible will be the joy in Jesus Christ he brings you home and you are a wall. How do we be a wall? How do we not let openings for our enemies into our lives? That's the aim of this series. Because walls and gates are all through the Bible. You ready? Here it is. You can remember this. It's really short and it's really simple. Walls kept the wrong people out. And gates let the right people in. Walls keep the wrong people out. Gates, let the right people in. And God gave walls to us. And listen, he's already named them. You don't need to name the wall that's around your heart. He's already done it for you. He calls it salvation. And you don't need to name the gates in your lives. He's already named them. And they all have a common name. They are called praise, according to Isaiah. You see, the wall symbolizes your salvation. Listen, let me, let me say something very, very gracious to everybody, as gentle as I can. If you're here this morning and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, not yet bent your knee to Jesus and asked him to forgive you of your sins and to give you salvation, eternal life, then you don't have the wall of God around you. The best you can get is the world's wall. And the world is happy to build your wall because the world builds holes and tunnels under it, through it, and above it so the enemies can get in. That's why it builds. But if you're a brother and sister in Christ, God's already built your wall. You can't build it. God builds it for you. It's called salvation. It's the security of his love for you. He's wrapped himself around you. He's giving you, he's given you salvation and no one could take that away. We have a strong city, Isaiah says. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. He is our salvation, not our efforts, not our good works, not our service and our church attendance. It's God's salvation that he has given. That's our walls. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. When God builds a wall around his people, the wall is called salvation. It is made out of the material of his presence and his glory is inside the city. It's inside your heart. But there's gates in that wall that God has built. They're called praise, but the gates... The gates all point back to Jesus, is what he says in John chapter 10. I am the gate. You can't get into salvation except through me. Whoever enters through me will be saved. There are no other gates in the walls that God builds. There's only one way into salvation. It's through Jesus. And as we return to Nehemiah, remember, I'm updating 2.0. Let me try and open your eyes to what we might not have yet captured in this book. You see, the people of God are in great trouble and shame. Jerusalem is in great trouble and shame, and they've got three enemies. Ready? I'm going to quickly tell you their identities because we're going to really hit it again hard in another week or two. You have Samballot. And Tobiah, whom I introduced last week, Sam Ballot represents Satan. Tobiah represents what we talked about last week, our flesh. And you're going to meet Geshem in verse 19, I think it is. Geshem represents the world. We all have three enemies. You've got Satan who is funneling and fueling and empowering our flesh. And you've got this world that is just lapping at the doorway of our gates, trying to get in. And all three of them are really, really good and really, really bent on keeping us in great trouble and shame. That's what they do. We all have these enemies if you're in Christ. But there's somebody that came to deliver Jerusalem. His name is Nehemiah. He came to, do, to, to help rebuild their wall and their gates But he's only a type and a shadow. And I know that's confusing language. Let me at least try to make it clear this way. You get up super early while it's still dark tomorrow morning, okay? And you go out in your yard and in your yard's a tree. And as that sun begins to peek up over the horizon and cast its light, that tree casts an incredibly thin and long shadow on your yard. But as the sun rises, the shadow shortens and it gets closer to the base of the tree until that sun, if it's right directly overhead of that tree, it casts no more shadow. You see the tree in all of its beauty and glory. That's what ty- types and shadows were like. That's that's why they're in the Old Testament. They are casting a shadow that says the morning sun, the son of God is rising in human history and when he rises to his zenith when he's rising in full glory you won't see the nehemiahs you won't see all the tabernacle equipment you'll see jesus because it was all about jesus anyways nehemiah is a type or shadow of jesus christ his life while real while he was a human historical figure his life pointed to jesus over and over and over again Did you notice that Nehemiah, when he heard about Jerusalem, when he heard about their great trouble and shame, that he wept, he grieved? Does it remind you of Jesus when he's coming over the hill of Bethany to get his glimpse of Jerusalem just days before he's going to die on the cross? He sees them and he begins to cry over his people. What a picture of Jesus is nehemiah do you remember nehemiah's job he's a cup bearer to the king of persia meaning that he would sample the wine to make sure there was no poison in it does it not remind you of jesus who was not just a cup bearer he drank the entire cup of the king and it wasn't filled with a little poison it was filled with the unbelievable wrath of god for our sins and jesus drank it to its very last drop Do you remember that Nehemiah was the wealthiest or was incredibly wealthy? He was the most powerful Jew in all the planet at that time. He is serving the most powerful king on, on earth. And he was third in command, the king, the princes, and Nehemiah. And yet he gave it all up. He's like Moses. He's like Moses before him who chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. What a picture Nehemiah is of Jesus, who though he was rich, Paul says in Corinthians, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Do you remember that the king of Persia, whom I've just mentioned, sent Nehemiah to Jerusalem on mission? Do you remember that God, the king of kings, sent his son on mission to seek and to save the lost? He didn't come to be served. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And God sent Jesus with all of his full authority. Nehemiah points to that because the king sent Nehemiah with letters of authority and the king sent Nehemiah with forces Persian soldiers but God has given Jesus his son all of the angels to minister to him when he needed it see Nehemiah friends was a man who did a great work for God's people listen but his life was a pale shadow that pointed to the brilliant glory of Jesus Christ the greatest wall builder who has ever walked this planet. Did you hear that? His life, Nehemiah's life, pointed forward. Now listen, Christian brother and sister, I'm speaking to you. Is your life pointing backward to Jesus? Nehemiah's pointed forward to Jesus, the one who would come and rebuild, is your life pointing backward and giving glory to Jesus Christ? Remember the, the title of this sermon, Rise Up and Build, right? Rebuilding walls in one another's life. Let me, let me camp on that for a minute. Rebuilding walls means your wall at one point was built. This is talking about this whole book to the people of God. This is referring to the Christian brothers and sisters in this sanctuary. Because when you came to Jesus Christ, he put around your life his salvation. He built the wall around you and he put gates in that wall so that you can celebrate God. You can testify to God and you can praise God. When you were walking to this church this morning from wherever you parked, Did you begin praising God in your heart? Did you walk through the doors of this sanctuary with thanksgiving on your lips? Were you the people of God that said, I have a gate into Jesus, into His presence, and I can praise my way through that gate because that's the name of the gate? And you had that wall put around you, but maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe your marriage is in ruin. Maybe you've gone through such difficult times that your faith is in tatters. Maybe someone has hurt you terribly or your children have grown up and they've walked away from Christ and your, your walls are in rubble all around you. That's why this book was written. It was written so that we would find hope that the walls which once were built can be rebuilt when the people of God rise up together and build. That's the point of Nehemiah. And now I'm done uploading Nehemiah 2.0. So let's look at the text. Verse 11 of chapter 2. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. I pasture in the Northeast, obviously. If I pastured in the Northwest, I'd be camping on the same point, number one, for a long time. If I was in Oklahoma or Wisconsin, likely this would be a pretty short point. But because the Northeast is so frenetically busy... Always hurrying, all of us, almost all of us I mean honestly, how many of you have a front porch to your house? Raise your hand if you have a front porch. How many of you spend regular time on that porch, slowed, slowing down and relaxing? A lot less hands that went up when you have a porch. I could throw this one and be a really mean pastor. How many of you have a garage? Come on. If you have a garage, raise your hand. How many of you can no longer park in your garage? That really has nothing to do with a sermon. It was like one of those little pastoral daggers that we get a lot of joy out of. I don't know, it's sick. All right, back to Nehemiah. How often do we rest? How often do we take regular rhythms of time and refocus in our lives? Now think of Nehemiah, ready? Here's the map. You've got Susa, which is up in Persia, And it's the winter residence of the king of Persia. Nehemiah travels 800 miles. It's not 800 miles in a direct line. It's so long because you got to go up and over the Arabian Desert and then down. Really, Jerusalem's not a whole lot more southern than Susa. It is some, but it's not a lot. You just can't go through the Arabian Desert because nobody survives it. It's huge. So 800 miles Nehemiah travels from Susa to jerusalem on horseback for some of you who have a job that takes you around the world you know just traveling Can make you exhausted. You go on an all day car trip. And you arrive tired. You haven't done anything. You're just tired. Think about traveling by horse. 800 miles. Over 3 to 4 months. He gets in Jerusalem. And he does what Ezra did. Years before him. Did the same thing. He took 3 days. And he didn't do anything else. But rest. Friends. Friends. You see somebody in your life. God begins to break your heart for them. Their life's in a mess. Listen, if you're not going to help, who is? You have the gospel. You've got authority by God. Somebody's got to walk into the ruin of the rubble and say, I will help. You can't pray and say, Lord, I hope you send somebody. God's going to say, okay, how about you? And you're not going to like that kind of an answer. So you see somebody's rubble. You see somebody's mess in life. And you begin to wade into that. And then realize, wait, my own life's a mess. My own life's exhausted. What can I possibly do for that person, for that family, for that church, if my own life is in ruin? You're not going to do much. We've got to be healthy if you're going to help other people. You know, you can safely infer from Nehemiah's character. Granted, we haven't done a full personality inventory. We've got a lot left in the book to gain a lot more insight into who Nehemiah was. But you know enough about Nehemiah to know this. He wasn't sitting in a house in Jerusalem eating leftover Persian bonbons with his feet up. I guarantee you he's doing something in his rest and he's praying. He was a prayer warrior. He's like a George Mueller of just a few uh, years before our time. He's like the Apostle James and right after Jesus. When James was thrown off of the the roof of the temple to be martyred and the fall didn't kill him, they took a miller's club and they started to beat him over the head until they killed him. They said of James, the Apostle, They said that his knees were like the knees of a camel, so arthritic because he was constantly bent down on his knees praying. What would would happen if our knees got sore from praying? Do you pray? Listen, instead of deflecting that, which is kind of what I tend to do, I'm sorry, I do. Instead of deflecting that... And making an excuse and a justification or so watering down prayer as, yeah, I, I pray before I get out of the shower and then I go on in the day. Do you really deeply, deeply climb inside intimacy with God like you would on a date with a person that you love? That's what Nehemiah is doing. He is a prayer warrior. He hears about Jerusalem's ruin. And for four months, he prays regularly. He fasted regularly. God, what can you do with me to help Jerusalem? And God begins to unfold the plan. He's not going to arrive in Jerusalem and forget how to pray. He's going to pray. You'll see why in a minute. But he's praying and he's meditating on God's Word and he's going to be like a tree planted by streams of water. Listen, put that metaphor in your mind. Get your life in the shape of a tree and, and deeply rooted into the ground next to a stream of water whose leaves do not wither, whose fruit is grown in every season. That's Nehemiah. He is a man of prayer. He is a man deeply resting in Christ. Friends, wall builders have to take care of themselves or they will not be any good for anybody else. And there's not too many things more disappointing then when you begin to feel burdened for somebody and you begin to step into their life and then realize, wait a minute, this is too big for me. I don't have the energy for this and you quit on them. That's about the worst thing you could possibly do. I think the worst thing is to never help anybody to see their ruin That's sin to know what you ought to do and not do it. James says that sin. I think the second worst thing is to start stepping into somebody's life and then quit. And when we do that, it's almost always because we didn't count the cost. It's because we're not rested. It's because we're not refocused in Christ. Weary eyes cannot build a straight wall. Listen, I know that one personally because I've done a lot of construction with my father and my brother. And hands that are tired cannot keep their grip on the trowel. And you saw in Elijah, if you were here in that series, that when you become exhausted, it can lead you to the broom tree of despair. Jesus modeled this. He began to take his disciples away. He began to give them regular rhythms of rest and refocus after strenuous times of ministry. If Jesus, who has no limit to his energy, who has no cap to his power, knew the value of resting then maybe we ought to learn it too. You know why I think, I'm just going to throw out one. If you don't agree with this, you can discard it. That's fine. But I think one of the reasons that most of us are so busy that we don't rest. You might not agree with this at first. Would you at least just honor me and think on it for a while before you throw it away? Rest is a pride killer. Every time you go to bed at night, every time I go to bed at night, you know what the last thought ought to be through your mind? I need sleep. Therefore, I am not God. Because God never sleeps and he never slumbers and he always watches over us. Rest is a pride killer. It tells you you have a limit. It tells me I've got a cap to what I can do. I've got a limit to what my abilities are. I can only go so long before I hit the wall, what they call the bunk. I can't do it anymore beyond this. It's not a a race to sprint. It's an endurance race. And rest reminds us that we're not God. There's something else that kills pride. And it's also difficult to do. And it's point number two. Nehemiah served within a team. Look what it says in verse 12. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. Now, we're not given the names of these men. We don't know who they are, but I could tell you that Nehemiah is on a secret mission at night. He doesn't want to call attention to what he's there for. He hasn't told anybody yet. These are trustworthy, competent men. If it was me, it would be a bean counter. It'd be an engineer. It'd be somebody that is good at managing teams and people and it would be somebody that knows the area, somebody from Jerusalem. I don't know who it is, but they're trustworthy and they're competent and they begin to teach us something that we've got to drill deep into our minds. And it's this. God will often speak through a divine echo. What do I mean by that? Here's what I've observed. I'm now in my 20th year of pastoral ministry, and I've learned only a few things, I promise you. But one of the few things that I have learned is this, and I am starting to see it more and more. And let me give you a hypothetical situation. You come in, and you sit down in my office, and you're, you're starting to share that your life is in trouble. And maybe it's an addiction. Maybe you're addicted to something. You're a Christian. You're a Christian. But something's got a grip on you by way of sin and you can't, no matter what you've done for year after year after year, you can't overcome it. You cannot get victory for it. And I begin to graciously and gently, and I can guarantee you it'll be gentle because I can't believe people will share share with me their stories. I'm always shocked. I mean, the fact that you would tell me these things is so incredible of a privilege It just brings grace out of me. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. I think I've heard, I'm pretty sure I've heard almost all of it. All it does is make me love you more. That's what a wall builder does. When a wall builder begins to see your ruin, it doesn't turn them away. It makes them pray for you more and work more in your life. So you share your story with me. And I begin to gently give you the word of God. That's why I give you the word of God because that's the letters of the king that has given me the authority to give to you. You've got the same authority. You've got the same letters. And I'm not gonna give you anything but the word of God. I'm gonna do it the best I can. It's gonna be gracious, It's gonna be gentle. But here's the divine echo. When you leave my office, I've seen this over and over. You're gonna text me, you're gonna email me or you're gonna call me and you're gonna say, Tim, I cannot believe this. The same thing you told me in counseling, I heard it just now again on the radio from that preacher. And I went home and I opened up my mailbox and there's a card from a friend and they don't really know what's going on in my life, but they put a verse in there and it's the same verse that you just said. That's the divine echo when God begins to really say it's time to rebuild. I'm telling you, he's going to work through a lot of different voices because you don't hear very well and neither do I. Our ears are plugged by our flesh. And God has to pull the stoppers out of our, the ears of our hearts. And the way he does it is reverberate his voice through many, many different means. And all of a sudden it begins to penetrate you. All of a sudden it begins to gain traction in your heart. And all of a sudden it begins to give you hope. God knows my mess. And God's got a plan. And he's bringing me a team of people to minister his truth to me. That's the divine echo it's kind of like samuel a little bit when he was a little boy and his mother had given him over to the service of the lord and he's under the care of eli the priest of jerusalem of israel and samuel keeps hearing this voice it was god's voice but he's a little boy he doesn't know it's god's voice so he goes to, to eli and, and he says eli were you calling me And Eli keeps sending him back saying, no, I never did. And finally, Eli gets the idea. Hey, I think this is God reverberating into that little boy's heart. And so Eli says, the next time you hear Samuel, the next time you hear that voice, I want you to respond and say this, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so he does. And God speaks to that little boy. Listen, when that divine echo begins to reverberate in your mind and people and person after person are saying the same truth into your heart, you're hearing it from preachers. You know, I start a sermon series. This happens constantly. And people will come up to me and say, hey, did you know that Skip Heitzig is doing Nehemiah? Did you know that... James McDonald just did Nehemiah. I don't know, but I know that you need to hear it because God's speaking in your heart and he's saying it's time to do a work of rebuilding. That's how it works. And here's how it functions in real life. It's men, when you say to yourself, finally, you generate enough humility to say, I can't make it in life alone. I need a group of men to come around me. And you get involved in that Wednesday night Men's group, or that Thursday night men's group, or that Tuesday morning men group, or men's group, or that Friday night men's group, and you say, "Okay, it's time for me to get involved." And all of a sudden, echoing through all of these men, is God speaking into your life, saying, "Don't give up. Go- I'm going to do a work of rebuilding in your life, and I'm going to do it through a team of men that are going to come around you because you can't build that wall on your own." Ladies, it's the same thing. You in a marriage where you are desperately lonely? Did you know you can? be lonely in marriage well of course you knew that are you in a marriage where you don't get that love from your husband he gets it gives it to the career but he doesn't give it to you listen the place you go is to a godly group of women who will come around you and pray you love him even when it's not coming you show him christ even when he's not leading you and watch what god does to reverberate his will in your life and give you hope of his glory You know, the most exciting, I think, ministry that's happening right now, or at least one of the most exciting, is a group of parents that are meeting whose adult children, 17 and older, have walked away from Christ. Listen, if you've ever had that happen, you know the brutal pain. And that pain is almost always the voice of guilt. You failed your parents. Where did you go wrong that your kids left the Lord? That's how you feel as a parent. And that's a lie from the enemy. You've got three enemies, Satan, flesh, and the world. And all three of them are going to tell you you're a failure and it's your fault. But you've got to take your mind and you've got to captivate God's truth. And you've got to bring God's truth in there. And it's going to happen when God reverberates the echo of his truth through woman after woman and couple after couple. And it says, listen, we're with you. We're struggling with you. But God has a plan. Don't give up on God. That's how it works. Listen, let me say it this way, and I know I'm going to step on a toe, but I'll try to step gently. If you're living a solo Christian life, and you've put a wall around you with no gates, remember, walls keep the wrong people out, gates let the right people in. If you don't have a gate, and you don't have people coming in and reverberating God's truth in your life, you will not build. You can't. Number one, God won't let you because it's always to be done in redemptive community. That's why he built the church. That's why he's given measures of grace to his people. Listen, I've got a gift of the spirit of God and God took that gift. Listen, you better listen because he's done it to you too. He took that spiritual gift. He measured out exactly what he wanted Tim Mackley to have. And that's all I'm ever going to get. I might learn how to preach better, but I'm never getting more of this gift. And he poured it into my life the moment that I became a Christian. And he said, Tim, you've got everything you need to do all that I'm asking you to do. If I was asking you to do more, then I would have given you more of the measure like I did Charles Stanley. I hate that guy. (laughs) Did I say that? I mean, I love that guy is what I meant to say. slipped. You have been measured out. Gifts or a gift. And God has poured it into your life, brothers and sisters. And that gift and the the exact measure of it is enough to do everything that God's going to ask you to do. Listen, if he wanted you to do more, he would have given you more of the gift. And when we work together as a team, then where I lack, look at our pastoral team. Because pastors Matthew, Tim, and Jason have gifts that I don't have. And if it's just me pastoring this church, you are to be sorry. Because they add in what I don't have. And that's the way it works. It works in teams. Nehemiah served in a team model. And you should too. And finally, point number three, Nehemiah inspected before he implemented. He aimed before he shot. He looked before he worked. And he says in verse 12, And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Not even his friends, look what it says, not even his trusted friends knew what God had put into his heart, into my heart to do for Jerusalem. I don't know who these friends were, but I do know he trusted them. And I know this, that grammar is important. I know many of us don't really like English, and we don't pay attention to the very use of grammar in our speaking, yet grammar can completely impact what you're trying to communicate. Let me give you three examples. These are are from actual resumes sent in to try to get a job. First one is this. I received a plague for salesperson of the year. I think he meant plaque. Another one wrote, I'm a perfectionist and rarely if, if, ever forget details. That's not my typo. That was theirs. There's still another whose resume boasted I was instrumental in ruining, I think he meant running, entire operation for a Midwest chain store. Listen, if that chain, if that new job hired them, they should be ruined. All right, that was that was a little harsh grammar is important it can completely impact what it is you're trying to say so let's go back to verse 12 and let me show you why it's important that we understand this look what he's saying again everybody look with me verse 12 and i told no one what my and pay attention god had put into my heart most of your translations most of your bibles put that in the past tense right Now look at me, and this is what we don't understand. Because it makes it seem like God downloaded in PDF file format into Nehemiah's head architectural plans and everything that he's supposed to do to rebuild Jerusalem. And that is so far from the truth. It's written in what's called the past continuous tense, which means... God began to show him in the past what he wanted him to do and he was continuing to show him in the present and he would continue to show him as he prayed. This is why Nehemiah prays so much because God's not downloaded. He's streaming into Nehemiah. This is what I want you to do. This is your next step and we don't like that. Here we go again. Another pride killer. We like to know the whole plan. Here's somebody that's in a mess. We want to know exactly what it's going to cost us, how much I'm going to have to sacrifice to be able to help, right? Because we don't want to get in over our heads and we don't want to commit too much and then find out we can't give it. So we want all the answers and a lot of us sit right there at the intersection and wait for God to download all of the instructions before we move. And friends, if that's you, A, you're not living by faith and B, you're not going to be moving anytime soon because God's not going to do it. He says, here's my word, here's my will, here's my mission, and it's going to light up your next step. Yeah, I know you hear the growling of animals down that dark path. I know you see there might be a cliff, and you're going to go over it with the person whose life isn't a mess, and I know you don't want to do it, but trust me, here's the next step. I'm taking care of the future. That's faith. See, Nehemiah is really saying, and I told no one what my God is putting into my heart to do for Israel. He's making it clear. He's burning away the fog continually. And I and Nehemiah is responding in, in obedience. Look what it says in verse 13 I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. Wait till we get to the explanation of these gates. It's unbelievable. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. You see, Nehemiah goes out with his friends privately to inspect the condition of the walls and the gates. And you read in verse 12, that really puzzling sentence. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. What on earth does that mean? Listen, if it's in the Bible, it's important. There's not a word in the Bible that doesn't have significance. What's it mean that there was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode? Let me give you two explanations, and I don't even think I'm getting it all, but let me give you two. Number one, it's telling us, listen, it's telling us there were no Persian soldiers with them. Because if there were, they would have been on horses. That's what they rode. They're not walking. They're going to be on horses in the best military advantageous position they could be in, which begins to tell us this. Listen, if your life is in ruin, the walls of salvation are down. The enemy is overrunning you. You're doubting God's love for you. You're doubting God's goodness. You're not putting your hope in God. You're filled with despair. Listen, don't go get the world to try to rebuild your spiritual walls because the world doesn't use that material and it doesn't know how to build it. You go to redemptive community. You go to your pastors. You go to your elders. You go to the leaders. You go to your priest, brother, and sister. If they're a Christian, they're a priest, and they can bridge build. They can hold your hand and hold God's hand and bring the two of you together. That's where you go when your walls are in ruin. You don't go to the world. It can't rebuild it. But let me give you a point number two reason why there was no animal with him. Do you remember another person 480 years later who also is going to be on a donkey? That was likely the animal Nehemiah was on who's also going to be the only one on a donkey who's also going to be riding into Jerusalem, a city that's in spiritual ruin as people throw down branches and cloaks and he rides over them triumphant as her king you see again nehemiah shadows foreshadows the one who is to come that will look at the ruin all around him and know how to build a wall of salvation he will give his life to redeem his people And you go to Revelation chapters 1 through 3 and all of a sudden you see a picture of Jesus. Now listen, this is really important. And the scene in glory, the scene in heaven is Jesus is walking and standing near the seven golden lampstands. You remember that from Revelation? And each lampstand represents a church. Because when Jesus as he did in one of those churches, sees no spiritual rootedness in the church, he will remove his lamp. He does it all around. You want to know why churches close their doors? Personally, the number one reason is not economy or attrition in numbers. Those are happening because God's no longer blessing. He has removed his lamp because that church will not preach his word. Because Jesus is jealous for his churches and he's jealous for his people. You know what's happening right now, friends? And you may not even be aware of this. Jesus, all worship, all this sermon has been walking up and down these aisles. He's been walking through these pews and he's been taking an incredibly deep look right into every one of our hearts. Same thing God did in the Old Testament when Israel made camp. He walked to and fro throughout the camp, looking for holy people. And friends, he stopped. Listen, he has stopped at you this morning. He looked into your heart. The way Nehemiah rode around that wall, had to get off his donkey at one point because the rubble was so bad the donkey couldn't even pick its way through. He might be seeing that in your own life right now. He might be seeing your walls built. You're secure in your salvation. You are living in holiness. You are a tree planted by streams of water. You are streaming God through prayer. You are walking with him in faithfulness. Your fruit trees are blossoming and people are eating the fruit of the spirit. That might be you, but I bet a lot of us, that's not us. And when he stopped at you this morning, listen, when he stopped at you this morning and you're a Christian. He didn't cluck his lips and say, I can't believe what a mess you've made. That is not even in the heart of Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He stopped and saw your ruined walls and said, I'm going to send help. Listen for the echo that's my voice saying it's time to build. Let's get on and get going and rise up and build. He might be telling you that this morning. It's time for you, friend, to get busy and rebuild somebody else's life. Would you close your eyes? And I'm going to ask that everybody does. I'm not going to ask you to get out of your pew. I'm just going to ask you to be honest. If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ and received his eternal salvation, then you have no wall around you that is of God. The wall around you is not called salvation and the gates in that wall are not called praise. And if you've recognized that you have the world's wall around you would you just be honest and raise your hand this morning so i could pray for you that's all i'm going to do is pray for you i see that hand i see that hand as well any more please be honest i see that hand any more Let me ask one more question. Jesus stopped this morning and he inspected your wall. That word means, it's a medical word, it means to probe deeply to get a good picture of the wound. If that's, you understand that Jesus stopped and he probed deeply your heart. And if you know, you know that what he saw was broken. And in need of repair, would you raise your hand? That's as simple as I can get. Would you just raise your hand? I see those hands. I see those hands. Be honest, friends. Just raise your hand. All I'm going to do is pray for you. I see them. I see it. I see it. I see that one. Anybody else? God is speaking to you, friends. I see it. God is speaking to you. It's likely in an echo because we don't hear any other way. It has to reverberate to get to our souls. But that voice is one of love and of favor. And he's urgent and he's saying, let's build, let's rise up and build. And let me show you what I can do. Let me pray for both of your groups. Lord, I pray for those who raised their hands, several people, Lord, who have recognized this morning, they don't have a wall called salvation around them. For them, that's where it starts. Lord, it's, there's, no, there's no magic prayer. If there was a formula prayer, you would have given it to us in your Bible. There just isn't. It's just each of these people crying out to you in faith, saying, I get it. I hear it and I believe it. Would you please save me? Take away my sin and give me eternal life. That's as simple as it needs to be. Lord, help them to do that. And Lord, build that wall thick and high around them and let them be secure in who they are in Christ from this day forward and put gates in there that they can now Enter into your presence with praise and thanksgiving. Lord, for my friends who, whose walls have been built, but they've fallen down. Lord, I think you're speaking to a lot of people. And it's likely echoing. And Lord, I pray that they would hear your voice It says it's time to build. And let's do it together. You can't do it alone. Let's let other people in those gates. Walls were meant to keep people out. Gates were meant to to let the right people in, let the right ones in and build together. Lord, may we, the people of God, learn to rest, refresh, and focus in Christ. May we serve together in teams and speak your truth to one another. And may we learn to inspect before we act and before we implement. Learn what it is that you want us to do. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.